All right. Listen, the whiteboard is more for me than it is for you, just FYI. I can't see the whiteboard. You don't have to see the whiteboard. It just helps me process. Quick question, who's first family night? Wow, awesome, welcome. Welcome to family night. Thrilled to have you guys. I'll ask next week who came back from the first family night. <laughs> For the next few weeks, we're going to be uh, tag-teaming Pastor's Bible Study. Tonight, I'll do a little intro here, and then Stu uh, Lockerbie, who has one of our groups, will be taking the middle piece, uh, and I'll come back up and sum it up. But I want to set the stage for Stu because there's a movement, a modern movement called Christian nationalism that what we're studying tonight is not. I want to make sure that's clear. We believe that there is a unique anointing upon the United States of America because the United States of America as a nation has been the single greatest spreader of the gospel in all of history. How? Well, the reason we want you to understand why there is such providence, the topic of, of Stu's talk on America, is because what, I, what my goal is to say, why do we care? Well, let's go back to the scripture that says that Jesus would come prophesied in the fullness of time. Remember that? In the fullness of time. Now, when Jesus came, who was in charge? Come on, take a stab at it. Gold star. Gold star. Good job. I want to just draw a line over the next few minutes before Stu comes with his presentation and give a little bit of insight comparing, if we can, Rome as a world power and America as a world power. Rome had a very unique government and culture. Up until Rome, the practice was that nations would conquer and force the nations they conquered to be just like them. You will speak our language, you will worship our gods, you will follow our cultures and our mindsets and everything that we do. And when you're a conquered people, that was just the status quo of the ancient world. When we conquer you, you're either a slave to us or you're going to become like us. Now, the Romans had a different take. They conquered nations and said, listen, keep your religion, keep your culture, but make no mistake, we're in charge. Really, what they did is provided the infrastructure for said countries and nations that they would conquer and connected the known world at that time. Now, where the government and the culture of Rome was very much 
champion of that. We champion what? Freedom. So the idea of the freedom that America was both founded on, built upon, fights for, and I don't know if about you, but many times I ask myself, why are we over there fighting? Anybody else? Just me? Now, if we get into it, we know that most of the time things are not what they seem, even though they're saying we're going to fight for freedom. Eh, you know, nowadays you never know. But the principle, let's just put it this way, the Iron Curtain would have never fallen. The gospel would have never reached many European people had not America's commitment to freedom been as strong as it was. Now, it ain't about America, but it's about what God used America for. You with me? So we don't worship at the throne of America. We worship at the throne of the King of Kings who uses our nation to spread the gospel. Now, same thing when Jesus happened upon the world. Rome was being used by God to spread the gospel. Isn't it amazing how God can use anything at any time and anyone? Amen? I am a testimony of this fact. <laughs> the other thing that Rome had is this military and stability. There was, for all intents and purposes, minimally speaking, stability in the known world. When I say known world, I mean developed countries. Nowadays, we would, we would consider the rest, Western world or every, everywhere but the villages in sub-Sahara or South America or even in the hills of uh, Eastern Europe. So the developed world, Rome brought such stability through military might, right? No one likes nuclear weapons. Bad idea. But the one thing they do do, sorry, my middle school brain just reminded me I said do-do. Stop it. The military stability now America being the police of the world, being the one sole superpower, definitely is not just a deterrent, but a complete off-putting of the advances of what we would call evil dictatorships in the world. Would you agree with that statement? I will, I will say this, Stu, and I think I'm accurate. The world is stable because of America. Now, we, there's chaos in the world. But imagine what it would be without a nation that could say, we're sending a whole army on one boat, <laughs> right? Be careful. There is stability that Rome offered, minimally speaking, 500 years. If you move into the Byzantine Empire and the kingdom that divided, 2,000 years Rome was in charge. It's a long time. Our nation is 247 years old, almost 250 the third thing, fullness of time, I'm going to put um, power here. The third thing is 
innovation. Rome was doing things that no one had ever done before. Indoor plumbing, believe it or not, was invented by the Romans. Crazy. Now, where it ran was into the street, but that's not important. (laughs) The innovation that allowed people to live in relative comfort, especially for that day, rolled through the technology and the innovation of the Roman world. Now, why is that important to us as Christians and believers? Because technology and innovation made the gospel easier to move forward. Everything from language and writing to the infrastructure of the city governments and towns. When people would come into a Roman city, they knew where to go to find the information that was going on at the given time. So, for example, you know to go to a certain website to find information news or whatever the case may be. They knew, this is the building I go to. By the way, in many Roman cities, that was the synagogue or the temple. Right? Temples to Roman gods or the synagogue for the Jewish God. Now, let's just take a minute and talk about the gospel. Name one way the gospel is sent out all over the world today. Missionaries, of course. So we'll just say people. Which nation sent the most missionaries since the beginning of time? The United States. Right? What's another way that the gospel is get out all over the world? Huh? Internet? The World Wide Web. Right? Internet, World Wide Web, invented by Al Gore. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Isn't that what was? Uh, <laughs> Let's think before that. Okay, here's a test about your generation. Show me the sign for making a phone call. If you have a receiver, you're old. Right? Go over to the youth ministry afterwards. They're going to do this. Or they're going to say, why would you want to call somebody? text them. (laughs) The phone invented by who? Bell. Who was where? In America. The telegraph before that. Now, Elon Musk, love him or hate him, is creating an internet that goes beyond wires. Now, we say we have Wi-Fi, but believe it or not, your Wi-Fi has to connect to something that's connected to a wire. Starlink is now taking the internet to the world. Now, it's both end times and a blessing. Amen? At some point, somebody's going to be in control, and I'm going to be gone in the rapture, and they're going to turn it off, and they're going to control it, but I'm going to be with Jesus. Amen? But Starlink being invented here in where? America. Now, he's South African, but he didn't do anything cool until he came here. (laughs) So... What I want you to see is the reason why I believe, as your pastor, why we offer a class like what Stu is going to be teaching. The other reason is the fact that testimonies change lives. When you really hear of the incredible things that happened in our nation's history, you're going to say, wow, 
fingerprints of God moments. It will do one of two things. It will make you thankful for where you are. And it will also give you a motivation to do more with the gift you've been given, which is freedom and living in this great nation. Amen? We are not serving a nation. We are not serving a president. We serve the King of Kings and the God who is using America currently to move forward the gospel by force. The Bible says that we take the kingdom by violence. Amen? We win. We move forward by force. And uh, I want you to be aware of those two things. I've got some scriptures I'll share with you in a few minutes. But now we've got an awesome presentation coming. Give it up for Stu Lockerbie. Well, over 20 years ago, I went to a presentation by David Barton. And David is America's premier U.S. historian. He has over 100,000 documents in his own private library from the founding era. And at that presentation, I bought my first book on the topic, The Bulletproof George Washington. And from reading that book and many others since then, because it started, about, it started over 20 years ago, I came to the conviction that America had God's providence working in it all through its history. But we don't teach that in our public schools anymore. And in fact, we don't even teach it in some private Christian schools. And look at where we are at. So this class as Pastor mentioned, is going to be offered as part of family night. And our intent will give to be to give praise to God, not to the people, but praise to God, because we get to see his providence, how he was working in American history. Now, as we know with any Bible character, with the exception of Jesus, these people of history were flawed. We are flawed. But yet, when they um, submitted themselves to doing God's will, they could do great things, as our president, first president, George Washington, recognized. He was but an instrument in the hands of providence. So, pastor hasn't mentioned it yet, but I'll put a plug in. If you're interested in the class and what you hear, sign up via the Church Center app, and afterwards I'll be in the back or in the foyer afterwards to have any to answer any questions you might have. Now, you can go to the next slide. So you need to know right up front that when I came in here tonight, I found out two things. I don't get to control my own slides, and the bullet points don't advance one by one like I, they were designed, okay? And I hate that, all right? <laughs> so, so give me a break, and don't read ahead. Just wait for me, okay? All right. So there is a challenge in studying history. And by way of illustration, let's just imagine that 100 years from now, somebody wanted to understand who you were. Now, they would be able to look through publicly available documents, you know, when you were born, when you died, if you were married, maybe if you served in the military, all of those kind of things. But they wouldn't know the why. Why did you do certain things? What made you think? that you could do this or that? How, what was your perspective on the world? Now you may keep a journal, but what does that journal say? Does it say the what or is it saying the why? Well, fortunately for us, many of our significant leaders did keep a journal for most of their lives, including Christopher Columbus that we're gonna focus on tonight. And whenever I do these presentations, 
I want to make sure that I focus on the original source documents. So I choose books that represent that they are actually looking at the original source documentation. You know, some of those 100,000 documents that I mentioned before that David Barton has in his library, that's where you want to go. You don't want to go to a textbook written 10 years ago that just references a textbook that was written 20 years ago. You're not going back far enough, okay? So tonight, there's three sources that I've used mainly, and that is called The American Story by David and Tim Barton, The Light and the Glory by Peter Marshall and David Manuel, and America's God and Country by William Federer. So what is history really, and why study it? Is it simply names, dates, places, events? Are we sleeping yet? Okay. No. History is his story. It's God's story. So the question is, why study God's story? Well, the Holy Bible represents itself as the God's story. And why do we study it? We, we study it to better understand God and who he is and what his plan is. Well, we know that God didn't stop working at the end of Revelation. He's continued to do things to spread his word, as Pastor said. And as ben Benjamin Franklin recognized in his longest speech of the Constitutional Convention, God is active in the affairs of men. So to that end, before we go any further, we need to understand this word providence. We've been throwing that around, providence of God in American history. What in the world does that mean? And to help us understand the meaning of that word, I'm going to turn to America's second public school textbook. The first was the Bible. This is the second. It's called the New England Primer. It was first published in 1690. That's 70 years after the pilgrims landed. Not a long time. In fact, public schools had been mandated since 1647, just 27 years after the pilgrims landed. And the reason the public schools were formed was to make sure children knew how to read the Bible. That was the purpose. How far we've come. So in this primer, it has the entire Westminster Shorter Catechism. Now, the catechism is a question-and-answer format that details what the beliefs are of Protestants born out of the Protestant movement in a question-and-answer format. The Protestant movement, of course, began in 1517 with Martin Luther as he nailed those 95 theses on the Catholic Church door. Question 11, what are God's works of providence? Again, this is a first-grade reader that many of our founders were familiar with. So they used that word providence commonly. They knew what it meant. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Today, we would say God has a plan. That's right. And he's working out that plan. That is providence. In history in America prior to the early 1900s, it was taught from the perspective of providence. That is, what is God doing in history? After all, as we've said, it's his story. In fact, Charles Coffin, author of A Story of Liberty, published in 1878, stated, if you do not see the divine hand of providence working behind the scenes, history will be an incomprehensible enigma. It'll just be names, dates, places, random events, who knows why this happened, I don't know. But if you look at it from God's perspective, what was he doing? It all starts 
to come together. You know, furthermore, the Bible encourages us to study history. The Psalms say, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. And Thomas Jefferson said, history by apprising them of the past will enable them to judge the future. So this is why we study history. We need to understand what God's been doing. We need to understand what his purpose might have been. Now, America has had many Red Sea and Jordan moments throughout history, but if we fail to understand that it's his story, if we fail to study history from a providential perspective, we will not see his invisible hand involved in the miracle of our founding. And thus, we will not be able to properly apprise our past or accurately judge our future. Now, today we are focused on Christopher Columbus through the question, will the real Christopher Columbus please stand up? Now, for hundreds of years, he was not a controversial figure. There are statues all over the world recognizing his accomplishments, what he did by the grace of God. But now, all of a sudden, it's a bad word. Oh, no, we can't celebrate Columbus Day. We've got to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. Well, let's find out a little bit more about Christopher Columbus. Who was he really? Now, it is believed that he was born in Genoa, Italy, between 1435 and 1436 to a poor family. He was not born in privilege. When he was still very young, he developed a strong passion for geographical science and an irresistible inclination for the sea. He began to navigate at the ripe old age of 14. You can go back to the previous slide, hon. You're stealing my thunder. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to hear about that when I get home. Sorry. She, she was put on the spot to, to advance my slide, so this is, this is a whole new thing for us. Anyhow, he was tall. He was muscular. He carried himself as a child of the king, that is, the living God, not as a child of a poor family. He was a devout Christian through the Catholic tradition, and he was an avid student of the Bible. His writings are literally laced with Scripture. He is not unusual in that sense when, when you talk about our founders. They all reference Scripture profusely throughout their writings. His wife-to-be, this is Columbus again, who his wife-to-be was very poor, so he didn't marry for money, he married for love. And he never knew his father-in-law as he had passed away before they met, but he was also a seafaring man. And his papers, charts, journals, and memorandums were shared with Columbus, and he considered them a great treasure. So here we have a child of God that just happened to be wanting to go to sea and navigate at a very early age. And then he just happened to meet the love of his life, whose father was also a seafaring man who happened to have all these charts. Do you see the hand of providence here? As I mentioned, there's statues all over the world recognizing Columbus, and there's also cities. Many states in the United States have a Columbus as a city name. Even Washington, D.C., you say, wait a minute, what are you talking about? District of Columbia. Columbia is a form of Columbus. His contributions and the fact that he was acting by the grace of God, again, recognized for hundreds of years. It's only recently 
that he's become controversial. Now, some of you out there are probably thinking, now wait a minute, I know he wasn't the first to discover America. There was this guy, Viking, Leif Erikson or whatever. And that's true, hundreds of years before Columbus. But he wasn't a Christian. And his discovery obviously did not result in the European and Christian expansion into North America. That's why Columbus is recognized as opposed to Leif Erikson. Now you can go to the next slide. So what happened here? Why are we cutting the heads off of statues? Well, according to groups that supported such an action, it is because Columbus was a racist, don't you know? And because he pillaged the natives and brought with him others that did the same. So what I want to do is look at what actually happened based on the actual accounts of Columbus and others when he came to America. What, what was his motivation? What did he have to go through to get here? Now, before his first voyage, and you can go to the next slide, before his first voyage, Columbus labored for seven years. Seven have any particular meaning in the Bible? Seven years he searched for funding. He went to three different countries, Portugal, England, and Spain. I note that he didn't even try with Italy. I don't know what was going on there. But anyhow, with the help of Spanish monks, Columbus was able to obtain funding from King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella for three ships. Now, the Spanish monks essentially vetted Columbus through questioning him and examining his journals and became convinced that God had ordained his mission. So he set out in 1492. Can anybody name the three ships? Nina, Penta, and Santa Maria. It's helpful that they kind of rhyme, isn't it? Okay. So the Santa Maria was the lead ship, and Columbus, he himself, captained that one, and two brothers captained the others. Now, I want you to try to imagine yourself as Columbus, or better yet, one of the seamen who is on these ships. You see, no one on the ship, including Columbus, had ever traveled more than 300 miles off the European coast. 300 miles. And they had been at sea for over four weeks. They had traveled over 2,000 miles. So it was not only treacherous in terms of the waves and the storms and all of this, but he was being threatened with mutiny. The seamen were convinced that he was going to, they were going to sail off the edge of the earth. I mean, literally, they thought they were going to sail off the edge of the earth. They'd gone too far. And further, if that didn't happen, they would just hopelessly be lost at sea. They could never make their way back. So the two captains in Columbus, they needed to have a meeting, called by them, because of this mutiny that was being threatened. So they met. Columbus used all his powers of persuasion to ask for just a little more time. He asked for three days. Anything significant about that in the Bible? Does three days mean anything? Three days, you know, before Isaac was rescued by the angel of the Lord. Three days, Jonah was in the fish, and of course our Lord, three days in the grave. So I am convinced that it was God. God put it on his mind to ask for three more days. Well, the first day, it was worse, actually. The first day after that, why? Well, because it was good wind and calm seas. They were booking it, all right? So these men that were already nervous, now it's like, oh my goodness, we're gonna get to the edge even faster. 
But on the second day, on the second day, they came across a reed floating in the water. Where'd that come from? And a piece of wood that appeared to be shaped by a human. And finally, a twig with roses on it. Anybody remember the story of Noah and the dove that came back with the twig in its mouth? So is that providence? I think it is. I think God put it on his heart to ask for three days. And I think it's not coincidence that out there in the middle of the ocean, there just happened to be, on that day, on this particular path, these three things that told them land was in the vicinity. That night, they saw a light in the distance. And then, four hours before the dawn of the third day, land. Upon landing, and you can go to the next slide, huh? Sorry for all the words, but again, we're not supposed to be there. So just imagine there's no words up there yet. He christened the island, after he kissed the ground, he christened the island San Salvador, which meant, means rather, Holy Savior. And he planted an eight-foot cross that he brought along specific for that occasion. And he led them in this prayer. And I want to note that this prayer could be said by all of us. This prayer is applicable to us today. And so I'd like us all to say it together. So it's at the top. O Lord... Almighty and everlasting God, by thy holy word thou hast created the heaven and the earth and the sea. Blessed and glorified be thy name and praised be thy majesty which hath deigned to use us, thy humble servants, that thy holy name may be proclaimed in this second part of the earth. That can apply to us. A massive 14 by 20 painting of this event is one of eight paintings depicting significant events in American history that hangs in our U.S. Capitol in the rotunda. So keep in mind, how did that happen? Well, because history was taught from a providential perspective for hundreds of years in America. And so this was common knowledge. This may be news to some of us here, but this was common knowledge. So the guy who painted this painting He had the artistic ability. He had to put on his heart by the Lord because of these stories he had heard since he was a boy. So back to our story. He met the natives known as the Taino. He praised them as, quote, the best people in the world. He said a better race there cannot be. He said this about them, and this is up there on the slide so that they might be well disposed towards us, for I knew that they were a people to be delivered and converted to our holy faith, rather by love than by force. I gave to some red caps and to others glass beads, which they hung around their necks, and many other things. At this they were greatly pleased and became so entirely our friends that it was a wonder to see. I believed that they would easily be made Christians, for it seemed to me that they had no religion of their own. This is the message of the gospel. (laughs) This is what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to go into foreign lands and bring the message of Jesus. We're not putting people down that they don't know. Of course not. They will be judged by the revelation that had been revealed up to then. 
through creation. But yes, the gospel needs to be spread. And that's what Columbus was doing. He openly advocated for their full citizenship as full Spanish citizens. The Taino also told him, though, about their arch enemy, the Caribs, Caribs, or Caribbean, where we get the word Caribbean. They were also called the Canibs, where we get our word cannibal. However, Columbus was unable to investigate whether the reports were true before he returned to Spain within just a year's time. So he went back to Spain. You can go to the next slide. He went back to Spain to bring more colonists because he had found friendly inhabitants. But the Santa Maria had run aground and he had to leave some men behind with the Tayunos. And while he was gone, the Caribs launched an attack. They killed all his men that were left behind, all of them. And they kidnapped the Taino women and took them into their own camp. After a brief time in Spain, he set out on his second voyage in 1493. He brought 17 more ships and 1,200 settlers. He found out about the, you can go to the next slide. He found out about the, the uh, raid of the Tainos, and they encouraged him to please go and try to rescue the women that had been kidnapped. He successfully engaged the Caribs and freed the hostages who were still alive, but a doctor accompanying Columbus gave this report. You can go to the next slide. This is not for the weak of heart, by the way. These captive women told us that the Carib men used them with such cruelty as would scarcely be believed, and that they eat the children which they bear to them, only bringing up those children which have been born to them by their native wives. Such of the male enemies as they can take away alive, they bring here to their homes to make a feast of them. And those who are killed in battle, they eat up after the fighting is over right there on the battlefield. They claim that the flesh of man is so good to eat that nothing like it can be compared to it in the world. And that is pretty evident for all of the human bones we found in their houses. Everything that could be gnawed had been already gnawed so that nothing else remained of them but was too hard to be eaten. In one of the houses, we found the neck of a man undergoing the process of cooking in a pot, preparing it to be eaten. The habits of these caribs are beastly. And with all due respect to the doctor, that is a tremendous understatement. Now, I bring this all up because this and many other facts totally refute the narrative that all of the natives were peace-loving and everybody got along. Obviously, that's not true. You know, if you're inviting me to dinner, we can be friends. If I am the dinner, <laughs> sorry. That's where I draw the line. Historians estimate that by the time Columbus landed, 20 to 40% of the Native Americans were actually enslaved by other Native Americans. Columbus remained three years before returning to Spain. And he set out on his, you can go to the next slide. He set on his third voyage in 1498. And upon arrival to the islands on his third voyage, he found the colonists were in open revolt against him. Aha, see, I knew he was a bad guy, right? But why were they in revolt? They were in revolt because he's an Italian and they're Spaniards and he's the governor. 
They don't like that. Why is this guy giving us orders? Secondly, he insisted that the Tainos were treated as equal citizens, and they didn't like that either. See, they would cheat the natives, and he would hold them accountable and punish them. That didn't go over real well, but nonetheless, that's what he did. Why? Because he's a Christian man. These are human beings. They have inalienable rights. Have we heard that term before? They didn't like that. So they deposed him as governor and imprisoned him and sent him back in chains. Next slide. The king and queen examined the charges and evidence and completely exonerated him, realizing that he had done nothing wrong at all. But because of the animosity of the colonists, they wouldn't reinstate him as governor. Now that's where modern historians will seize on that and say, see, he was deposed as governor. It's like, well, (laughs) he was deposed as governor because the colonists wouldn't respect the fact that he was enforcing what the king and queen wanted, which was they wanted the Tainos treated as equal citizens. And they didn't respect him because he was an Italian. So prejudice goes a lot of ways. His fourth and final voyage was in 1502. And during the same year, he wrote the Book of Prophecies, which explained much of his reasoning to take all of these voyages in the first place. He was still searching for the mainland of Asia. You can go to the next slide. And this shows a diagram of all the different voyages that he took and how close he was to actually getting to America. (laughs) On his last voyage, he actually got shipwrecked off the coast of Jamaica. He was there for a year. He returned to Spain in 1504, and he actually died a couple of years later, uttering these last words. See see if this uh, is familiar to you. Into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. Now, the facts that we have presented are, like I said, from Columbus's own journals and other eyewitness accounts. But unfortunately, in spite of that and without evidence, many authors today assert that Columbus sought to destroy and pillage all Native Americans. This is simply not true. It's bad history. They have no support for it whatsoever. None. He forcibly took back Caribs. You know, the people that eat people? He took them. Those that didn't get killed when he took the prisoners back, the Tainos, He took them and and imprisoned them as opposed to just leave them there to be more cannibals. So he took them back to hold them accountable because they violated the human rights of the Tainos. There were friendly Tainos, several of which volunteered, excuse me, from the friendly Tainos, several volunteered to travel back to Spain with him, including a local chieftain and his family. And one of the peaceful natives chose to return with Columbus and actually took his last name and faithfully traveled with him. Now, Europe may not have been heaven, but at least there was not the very real and present danger of cannibals. Now, Columbus was not a perfect man, for he made mistakes and he failed in many areas. So I'm describing myself. And do you notice that only Christians say that? Oh, but you know, he wasn't perfect. Non-Christians, when they're celebrating their heroes, they don't go, oh, you know, well, he wasn't perfect. They don't, they don't put in that little disclaimer. 
well, Christian, why we, I mean, we would know that, of course, of anybody. Christians would know. Nobody's perfect except Jesus. But what is clear is that Columbus was not a heartless, genocidal maniac, as is often portrayed. Rather, he openly protected the Taino as governor and was faced open revolt because of it, because he treated the natives as equal citizens. Now, in terms of Columbus's inspiration to travel, he makes it, he makes it very, very clear what inspired him. Go ahead, hon. It was the Lord who put it into my mind. I could feel his hand upon me, the fact that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies. All who heard of my project rejected it with laughter, ridiculing me. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me with rays of marvelous inspiration from the Holy Scriptures. Columbus also had a deep understanding of his own spiritual condition. Next slide. I am a most trustworthy, or excuse me, I am a most unworthy sinner, but I have cried out to the Lord for grace and mercy, and they have covered me completely. I have found the sweetest consolation since I made it my whole purpose to enjoy his marvelous presence. For the execution of the journey to the Indies, I did not make use of intelligence, mathematics, or maps. It is simply the fulfillment of what Isaiah had prophesied. He goes on, and please take note of the depth of his thoughts and wonder, would you like your children and your grandchildren to have this as an attitude? Next slide. No one should fear to undertake any task in the name of our Savior if it just, and if the intention is purely for his holy service, the working out of all things has been assigned to each person by our Lord. But it all happens according to his sovereign will, even though he gives advice. He lacks nothing that it is in the power of men to give him. Oh, what a gracious Lord who desires that people should perform for him those things for which he holds himself responsible. Day and night, moment by moment, everyone should express their most devoted gratitude to him. Now, Columbus referred to the book of Isaiah, and as we know, all through Isaiah is prophecies, prophecies of how God is going to spread his truth over the earth. But because he was familiar with Isaiah, he might have been familiar with this scripture. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, possibly reinforcing Columbus's belief and the clear reality that we live on a sphere and Isaiah 45, 22, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. In his journals, he does mention specifically 65, 5 as one of the many biblical passage, passages that inspired him and reads in part, our God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. Additionally, he specifically recorded that his purpose was to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the heathens and bring the word of God to unknown coastlands. So there you have it. From Columbus's own writings, he believed he was fulfilling the Great Commission. 
Is it any wonder? Is it another coincidence that his parents named him Christopher, which means Christ bearer? Now, unfortunately, many modern historians deliberately make unsubstantiated derogatory claims about the explorer and deny appropriate recognition for his heroics, including his efforts to spread the gospel. They often approach historical events from the perspective that it was wrong for any European to come to this Western Hemisphere ever. And if there were any evildoers involved, then that shows that whole of America, its founding was totally wrong, should have never happened. Instead, as Christians, we need to view history from, again, this providential perspective and to recognize God works miracles through and in spite of evil. What's the most horrific event in history? Nailing God to a tree. And yet, it's the most blessed event in all of history. So one of the best explanations of what has occurred with Columbus is explained by Washington Irving. Next slide. Next slide after that. Washington Irving, who wrote in 1828 one of the earliest biographies of Columbus, a history and life of voyages of Christopher Columbus. I don't know if you can read that at all. Boy, that's kind of weird how that turned out. But he says this. There is a certain meddlesome spirit which, in the garb of learned research, goes prying about the traces of history, casting down its monuments and marring and mutilating its fairest trophies. Care should be taken to vindicate great names from such pernicious erudition. It defeats the mo one of the most salutary purposes of history, that of furnishing examples of what human genius and laudable enterprise may accomplish. So what was God doing in history with Columbus? God was using him to bring glory to himself. Stop, full stop. You can stop right there. Because that's what God wants every one of us to do. That is every one of us. That is our calling, to bring glory to him, period. But with Columbus, he also wanted to bring Christianity to the Western Hemisphere. He wanted to establish that foothold and begin laying the foundations of a country based on Christian principles. Was he an imperfect vessel? I think we've covered that, yes, okay? And did God use him, an imperfect vessel? Well, that's all he has to work with, folks, okay? <laughs> imperfect vessels, that's it. But did God place desires into the heart of that imperfect vessel? in order to accomplish great things according to God's providence. And I think the evidence is clear. He most certainly did. Delight yourself in the Lord. And he will, I'm going to paraphrase here, he will place desires in your heart. He's not saying, this verse is not saying, hey, you've got some carnal desire, delight yourself in the Lord, and the Lord will give it to you. No. <laughs> Delight yourself in the Lord. God will place desires in your heart that will glorify him. And I believe that's what happened with Columbus. Um, next slide. Questions? Comments? Concerns? All right. Very good. Um, next slide. This is our schedule, tentative schedule, beginning February 7th. 
um, each class stands on its own. So if you can't make one, don't worry about it. Come to the next one. If you can make two out of the whatever, that's fine too. doesn't matter. You'll learn something, I promise. That's it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, what a, what a riveting presentation. I'm telling you the one thing, I took away a lot, but the one thing I took away more than anything is the original textbook of public schools. What was it? The Bible. Why did they create schools in the first place? To help them teach, teach them how to read the Bible. What an incredible foundation. Tell you a story. Today, well, not today. Uh, a couple days ago, driving with Garrett, uh, my son, we're going somewhere, and pull in, get ready to go in. Garrett looks back at my car and says, Dad, your car's broke. I look back, it's leaking everywhere. And I was like, well, that stinks. So I take it to the mechanic, and the mechanic knows me by name. I have a Dodge Durango with 150-something thousand miles on it that I love. Which makes me sad. He said, hey, yeah, you need uh, this, that, and the other, and this is how much it costs. And I had just put a whole bunch of money into it because I needed this, that, and the other a while back. A couple months ago, wasn't it, Kel? So he goes, you know, it's got some miles on it. I know, I'll just pick it up and do it myself. So today, I endeavored to replace a radiator in a Dodge Durango. Let me guys, you know, YouTube is a great teacher. As long as you find the right video. So I'm watching this video. It's like 10 minutes long. This is easy can do this start ripping out the fan and taking stuff off and then I'm trying to take it like oh, what is going on it's not working and I look back at the video and it is not the video and Kelly texts me today like, how's it going terrible and then I go inside and I'm almost defeated and of course there's car parts laying everywhere you know <laughs> just walk away sometimes you just need to walk away so I went inside, and um, I actually found the right video. And the guy proceeds to say, listen, you're going to need about 8 to 10 hours. You're going to have to take the frame off of the front of the vehicle. Then you're going to need to do this. And I, <laughs> why? So I've got the particular car with the extra big engine, which I love because it goes, <laughs> But I have to take the whole thing apart, the stupid, just to replace the radiator. And so I'm sitting there looking at my radiator I got from Amazon thinking, I can send that back. And so I told Kelly, I said, forget it. Let's just go get another car tomorrow because this is, <laughs> take it back to the mechanic. I, I, no, I can't go back and say, yeah, why don't you fix it for me? I try, men, men, you can't do that, right? Sir, I tried and failed. No, no, I did not. I chose to get something else. And I'm sad about it. 
You're gonna, next time you're going to see me, you're going to see me in a little Toyota Camry. <laughs> hey, my car in high school. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> Nothing wrong with it. Runs good. <laughs> it's still got one. <laughs> I poured some stuff in it. It might last you for a little while. Anyway, oh, what have I got this for? Hey, another story, because this is fun, uh, and then I have to tell you one thing that's spiritual uh, before we leave. Um, my car in high school, how many of you guys remember your high school car? Yeah, young adults, yeah, I still have it. My car in high school was a 1981 Honda Civic hatchback. Five-speed, you know, clutching everything. My father bought me this car as a punishment car because my first car was pristine. It was an 87 Chevy Cavalier. Of course, it was still 10 years old, but it, it, it doesn't matter. It was nice, and it actually had power windows and all this. I wrecked it. Wasn't my fault. It was my fault. It was my fault. I wrecked it, and then the punishment car was this little Honda Civic hatchback, which immediately got a lightning bolt put onto the bumper, and it was dubbed the Birdmobile. This car, one day it wouldn't start. Dad? Car won't start. It's a Honda. Hondas are supposed to start, right? Car won't start. And uh, he comes out there and says, uh, well, let's look at it, start it up. And then he opens up the hood and he checks the oil. Turns out it needs oil in, in, the, in the engine. Bone dry. I mean, son, did, uh, did you know there's no oil in the car? I didn't even know the car had oil, Dad. Gas, I know. Here's how cool the car is. We poured oil in it, fired right up, and <laughs> drove that thing for two or three years. Has nothing to do with anything. It's just car stories, fond memories, until I got the car in which I dated Kelly in, which was a Beretta with tinted windows. It had the power window that clicks, you know, and it just goes all the way down, which all of them do that now. It was a newer thing back then, so I would click it and then immediately lean back so people could see my hands, the window going down. Anyway, let's talk about the days of Noah. Hey, guess what? Jesus is coming back. Days of Noah, here we go. Real quick, Genesis 11, chapter 1. One language. I want to draw some lines to what is today in uh, relationship to the days of Noah. The, the Bible tells us that Jesus will return, that the end will come, and it will be like the days of Noah. People will be given in marriage and partying and all that kind of stuff, and it goes through all of these activities that people will be doing in the days, did in the days of Noah and will be doing when Jesus returns again. One of the things in the days of Noah is there was one language, right? 
In the days of Noah, they only had one language. The Tower of Babel came later after Noah and the flood, and then the languages were confused. In Genesis 11.1, 1, it says, at that time, all the people would speak the same language and use the same words. Today, what is the one language? Well, English is kind of coming into it. Most people in any other country, for that matter, you'll find that they, the second language of many countries is English. It's the business, it's the default language of business all over the world and so on. But there's another language out there that is one language that everybody speaks. Who said it? Hmm? Emojis. <laughs> Not emojis. <laughs> That's good, though. Emojis, that, you know, that crosses lines. How about ones and zeros? Right? You can get a document in any language, and today, artificial intelligence can immediately translate it. Your phone can translate in real time, and it's actually really good, sharp technology. Missionaries are now using this to share the gospel before they get done with language school. The one language that we have today that is in all of our hands is this binary language of ones and zeros that can translate. Would you agree that there is one language that almost everyone in the world can speak? No? How many people agree? I got three or four. I'll take you. Days of Noah. What's, other, what's another common thing? Evil thoughts and deeds. In the days of the flood, <laughs> I'm going to put new ways to sin. In the days of Noah, Genesis 6 and 5, the scripture says, Then the Lord said, my spirit will not put up with humans for such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, the normal lifespan will be no more than 100 years. In those days, and for some time after, giant Nephilim lived upon the earth. And whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became uh, the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything, say everything, they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. Romans chapter 1, verse 3. This is the fastest Bible study we've ever had. Chapter 1, verse 3. I'm sorry, not chapter 1, 30, verse 30. <laughs> chapter 1, verse 30. i got to get my glasses. No, my glasses are not in there. I guess I'll look it up on my phone. And here I was making fun of Donna with the big font. 
on her iPad. <laughs> That's what I get. Romans 1.30. Bible drill. Somebody read it. There it is. Inventors of evil. You ever feel like they're just figuring out new ways to sin? Everything that mankind thought or did was intent, intently evil. And then today in Romans 1.30 we see that this was a letter to the Roman church, of course so many, so many decades and centuries ago, that today we really find ourselves observing and seeing that they're finding new ways to sin and it's not disheartening on one side because Jesus is coming soon, right? But on the other side, it's disheartening to know that there's people probably in this room that someone you love has got caught up in all that. That's the part that's disheartening. Amen? Now, that is the evil thoughts and deeds, the new ways to do, do evil, days of Noah. Third and final thing is the tower. And we'll call it Tower as well. The Tower of Babel was built to make a name for themselves. We always kind of say they built it to reach God. And I've done studies myself that we find that they were building it to try and reach God. Yes, but what they said is let us come together and build this tower so we can make a name for ourselves, which is the sin of what? Pride. So we find they are trying to make a footprint or a name for themselves. Days of Noah, there's something called the particle accelerator that we've talked about before where they try to find the God particle. They are feverishly trying to figure out ways to create life. Now, <laughs> quick survey of the room. Do you believe in aliens? Put your hands up if you do. I got a couple. <laughs> uh, yeah, define aliens. Do you believe in, okay, what are aliens? Demons. Do you believe in demons? That's an easy one. <laughs> now, if you're paying attention, there was a press conference recently where they were saying they're not aliens, but they were interdimensional beings what happened at CERN this particle accelerator when they tried to find the God particle is they had to shut it down why because something was happening in an interdimensional type of way where the people running the thing shut it down if you were here gosh I don't even know was it two three years ago pastor's prophecy hour where we did all of that anyway the bottom line is they're setting the stage for the big lie, which is to cover up the rapture. Right? Where did all the Christians go? How many of you guys are surprised when you see a UFO sighting reported today? Anybody surprised? Would you have been a surprise 25 years ago? Today, it's like, okay, D did you know that there's 
just as many sightings as unidentified underwater phenomenon as there is. <laughs> you know, the Bible tells us somewhere that there's a prism within the depths, right? That at the end of times, they'll be released to wreak havoc. You know, it's in Revelation. It goes through all of these judgments and all that. But at the end of the day, the days of Noah, Nephilim, giants, heroes, warriors. Nowadays, it's not a stretch, church. These otherworldly phenomena are desensitizing us, right? You see the headline, you pops up on your phone, another UFO sighting, uh, uh, <laughs> aliens in Miami Beach. If you hadn't seen that one yet, you're not looking. <laughs> it's all around us. They call it things like Bigfoot and what's the thing in Mexico, the Chupacabra or something anyway. There's all kinds of weird, but at the end of the day, demonic activity is real. And if we, not we as Christians, but we as people begin to accept it as not evil, but just another race or another discovery or whatever the case may be, please have your spiritual eyes on when you read the headlines. Amen? Because if you don't have your spiritual eyes on, you're going to fall into this whole other thing of confusion. But understand that the world and all that's in it belongs to God. And he will accomplish his tasks. And as in the days of Noah, that's when we should look up and expect Jesus to return. Because he is coming soon. Amen? Amen. Now, I'll leave you with this thought. Next week, or just this uh, reminder, next week... Family night, I'll be tag team preaching with my buddy Charles, who's back there. We're going to be teaching on prayer. And then the following week, we'll stay together for pastor's Bible study one more time. And I'll have a tag team uh, preaching partner on that time. And then we'll do classes in February. Sound good? Awesome. Thank you guys for being here tonight. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, have your way. Walk with us. Help us to be aware of the times that we live in. Help us also to have gratitude in our heart for where we live. Again, we don't, God, we don't worship a nation. We worship the God of it all, you. But we thank you for the freedoms we enjoy and for the opportunity that we have to experience you in freedom and to share our faith freely with people around us as well. And give us strength to carry through this week and blessing in your healing touch and your protection as we go from here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here tonight.